lecture today is the Samuel H. Kress Foundation Art of the Book in Europe lecture at Rear Book School. And we're grateful indeed to the Kress Foundation for their largesse and for bringing this evening's speaker to us. Kailan Hosa is an assistant professor in the history of art and visual culture at the University of California, Santa Cruz, the very department where she herself received her BA before earning a PhD in the history of art from UCAL Berkeley. Kailan searches European visual culture in the 18th and 19th centuries, focusing on histories of science, aesthetic philosophy, race, colonialism, and intercultural contact in Oceania. Her current book project examines the graphic and printed works created about voyages to the Pacific conducted by Britain, France, and Russia tracing how these pictures were used in arguments about geographical distances and human differences. Kailan's publications and collaborative projects have also centered on the methodological questions raised by curating and writing colonial histories from multiple perspectives. Among her many honors, she was, between 2018 and 2020, a junior fellow of the Rare Book School Andrew W. Mellon Society of Fellows in Critical Bibliography. We are delighted to welcome her back and to have her among us this evening to deliver our Crest Foundation Lecture. Please join me in welcoming her. Hello everyone, I am an art historian, so I will be speaking extensively about what is on the screen. So if you would like to move forward in the seating, please feel welcomed to do so. And thank you for that introduction, Michael, and thank you to Philip, Kimberly, Colleen, and Adam for all of their work in bringing me and helping me around here today, and with the generous support of Rare Book School and the Crest Foundation. I'm also grateful to everyone who has chosen to spend this beautiful Monday afternoon to hear this talk and participate in our conversation after. I'd also like to acknowledge the land, labor, traditions, and knowledge from which um, we, who gather here today, learn and are nourished. This land is the ancestral homeland of the Monacan Indian nation, and I'd like to offer my respect to their elders and knowledge keepers, past, present, and emerging, who steward this place through generations. I also think it prudent to acknowledge and pay respect to the enslaved Africans, enslaved laborers, and free black laborers who built UVA as well as their descendants. I'm an art historian whose approach to 18th and 19th century Europe stems from the mutually determining histories of visual culture and colonialism, including settler colonialism in the Pacific. But more personally, I am descended from settlers who left the Philippines to follow American agribusiness to Hawaii and have spent most of my life living on Miwok, Ohlone, and Mohican land. I know that our presence in these places of higher learning is neither neutral nor inevitable. Rather, it is inextricably intertwined with the histories of power that many of us study and critique. The work that I will be sharing with you comes out of my larger book project, which is very much still a work in revision, um, and we will talk about that probably in our Q&A. And it considers not only the impact of European voyages to the Pacific in the construction of human differences, but also the role that art history as a discipline that develops simultaneously to many of the ideas that form the bedrock, uh, bedrock of modern notions of race played. The book research is part of my dedication as a scholar and educator uh, to resist the apparent naturalism of visual culture that was created to argue for racism. The historical period I research and teach was an era in which natural historians sought to formalize cultural differences into biological ones and make them permanent. In Europe, this was a period that gave rise to aesthetics as a branch of philosophy focused on principles of beauty, art, and taste, to several theories of the origins of human difference, 
to debates over the abolition of chattel slavery and to no fewer than 15 expeditions to the Pacific Ocean. That last one might seem to fit uneasily with the rest, but part of the contention of my work is that it is absolutely in dialogue and constitutive of all of them. And here's a good old slide from Encyclopedia Britannica. I'm going to be speaking to you today about the first of the three voyages led by James Cook, often referred to as Captain Cook, though on the first voyage he was a lieutenant. Um, these voyages took place between 1768 and 1779 and are the most famous of the so-called 18th century voyages of discovery, though they were neither the first nor last of their kind. Today I'll be focusing on works from the first voyage launched in 1768, which was notable um, for being the first of the major 18th century expeditions to the Pacific uh, to purposefully include trained artists aboard. The images produced on this voyage, in particular those picturing Aotearoa, which is the modern indigenous name that is currently in use um, for the lands that have been called New Zealand in Euro and Euro-American parlance since the 1600s. And in particular, I'll be focusing on works made after studies made by a young artist named Sidney Parkinson, and these works circulated widely and quickly. So I have two pictures on the screen right now that are both actually from a Boston almanac. And you might wonder, why would I care about these if I'm here to lecture about art of the book in Europe? And part of that is because I would contend that we cannot so easily isolate Europe in this period. These are two prints at left in copper plate and right in woodcut, both made for the 1774 Bickerstaff's Boston Almanac. It combined three images from separate plates that the British Admiralty had sponsored in the publication of Cook's first voyage, along with an excerpt of a section about Cook's time in Aotearoa. In the vast reproduction of prints made after Cook's voyages, they offer us a case study because there are hundreds of pictures we could look at today and we don't have time to do that. They offer us a case study on the impact of print techniques and the reproduction of images of the Pacific within the context of 18th century discussions of race, and they provide a glimpse into the wide reach and intermediality, the play of different media of voyage images. On a sentimental note, my work has been inestimably enriched by the three courses I have taken here at Rare Book School, and these two plates and my writing about them, including a co-authored essay with another um, Society of Fellows member Jennifer Chung were made possible by the programs here, including the Society of Fellows in Critical Bibliography. So back to our map. Prior to Cook's first voyage, Tahiti and its closest neighboring islands had been best described in European textual sources. Indeed, those sources contributed to the decision to send a ship to the southern seas to witness the transit of the planet Venus across the sun. This was an astronomical occurrence that was deemed important to the calculation of planetary and terrestrial distances. Additionally, accounts romanticizing the Pacific and their inhabitants raised questions about whether Pacific Islanders were more like Europeans or the other continental races generally accepted at the time, Asia, Africa, and the Americas. Cook was given instructions to not only observe the transit of the planet, but to chart land masses, make observations of indigenous people, and to cultivate alliances with the leaders of native peoples so that he might take possession of any possible lands for Great Britain. While the detailed descriptions of the indigenous inhabitants of Tahiti and prodigious botanical studies, in particular those of breadfruit trees, and there's a sample of one of these pictures of a breadfruit tree, sorry, here. I'm no longer miked when I move. Um, um, they, were, they were part of what made the three months that Cook's first expedition spent in Tahiti understandably famous, the less celebrated six months that the expedition spent surveying Aotearoa also yielded major insights and discoveries. The accounts and pictures that resulted however, from these explorations, reveal that it was more challenging for Cook and those who traveled with them. Indeed, it is unlikely that they could have negotiated the waters nor interactions with indigenous Maori communities that they met in Aotearoa were it not for the fact that Tupaya, a Rayatean star navigator who traveled with them, could speak as a translator. During this time, Cook drafted the first European chart of the coastlines of Aotearoa seen at left, featuring a dotted line to indicate the ship's track while it conducted the survey. 
The first line surrounding the landmass, the solid one, established for European cartographers that Aotearoa is comprised of two primary islands and is separate from this mythical great southern continent that many were seeking to graph at the time. The second line indexes shifts in the itinerary due to what has been called the vagaries of the voyage, that is weather, need for provisions, and interactions with Maori communities. This was not published as extensively as the image at right, which is a coastal profile made by the Endeavor artist Sidney Parkinson at Taranga Nuiakiwa in Aotearoa. And it combines the varieties of information of the chart by employing pictorial and verbal modes of representation. Printed both in Parkinson's posthumously published journal and in the Admiralty-sponsored account of the Southern Seas Voyages, edited actually by a former magazine writer, this coastal profile aims to offer the viewers a precise image of a given location's geological features as viewed from a ship. And this type of picture was used in concert with charts so that a navigator could recognize the landscape pictured against the horizon once they arrived at the same coordinates as the predecessor who produced the image. These specific profiles depict where Cook and his ship, the Endeavor, first made anchorage in Aotearoa. And it should be noted where the local Tangata Fenua, or the people of the land, trace their ancestry to some of the earliest arrivals who navigated across the great ocean. The voyage crew named the area depicted in Parkinson's coastal profile, Poverty Bay, because they acquired few provisions at the location. And this is likely due more to the narrow range of their venture, they traveled less than a kilometer inland than the actual fertility of the region. At Taranga Nuiakiwa, Cook and those aboard the Endeavor also established a violent mode of introducing themselves to Maori communities. They fired muskets at the Maori vessels launched from the shore to investigate the ship as they approached. For many Maori iwi, iwi a term meaning people but often translated into English as tribe, Sending representatives out in a waka or canoe serves as a ceremonial assertion of place, but also from a practical stance, it makes sense to meet the arrival of an unfamiliar ship into the area which you live. Nonetheless, this practice had fatal consequences. One of the four young men in the first boat that set out to meet Cook's ship, Temaro, was shot through the heart. The next day, Tupaya, that navigator that I had mentioned before, who joined Cook's expedition, acted as a translator and was able to communicate with some of the Tangata Fenua, the people of the land, because of the relative similarities between their languages. And yet, nonetheless, that day ended with several more Maori men wounded and killed by gunshots. The publication then of Godfrey's engraving called A War Canoe of New Zealand after Parkinson than is telling. Many studies of these elaborately carved vessels suggesting that waterways were and are often spaces of mutual observation and negotiation exist. Parkinson's studies consistently show Maori paddlers situated in a minimally described span of water against a cloudy horizon, but some are more animated and therefore more vividly illustrate the plate's caption. Nonetheless, this sedate image, like many of Parkinson's representations of Maori men, circulated widely, often in contrast to the narratives which accompanied them. Textual accounts of these interactions often describe Maori um, men in particular as bellicose, even though it was the British who often uh, initiated exchanges with gunfire. These narratives convey a sense of the fear that historian Bronwyn Douglas has described as countersigns of indigenous agency, that is, residues of the impact indigenous people have on voyagers expressed in effective or reactive language, the expression of fear, for example. Prints after Parkinson, accompanied by narratives of conflict with Maori iwi, circulated widely not only in the lavishly illustrated volumes of Cook's Voyage published by the British Admiralty, but also in magazines, like the London Gentleman's Magazine seen here and on the poster for this event, um, as well as the almanacs that I showed you earlier, where the waka is prominently captioned, a war canoe of New Zealand. One of the more unusual places where I found a variation on this print was at historic Deerfield in Western Massachusetts on a gunpowder horn, where it had been adapted to local circumstances. And I wrote about this in an article with that fellow RBS alumna, Jennifer Chung. 
Though the boat on the powder horn retains elements of the Maori wakatawa, or Maori um, war party canoe, the orientation is reversed. And the figures have been dressed to suggest that they belong to one of the indigenous nations of Massachusetts, though very schematically. And so one contested expanse of water is made to stand for another. Or at a minimum, this offers um, the Cook print offered a compositional solution drawn from a corpus of images where the authority of the British Empire was contested by indigenous persons. In drafting our joint essay, Jennifer Chung and I found that even as the image of the Wakatawa seems to have struck a chord of recognition in the horn's owner and possibly maker, the New England colonists altered the image to address a specific context. And these changes, like the jackets worn by the figures, the telescope held in one of their hands, suggests a tangled web of engagement. On the one hand, this particular horn um, individuated the rendering of each figure, and so it not only evoked a moment of direct encounter, but an interest of, um, sorry, an attitude of interest and relative openness on the part of the artist. On the other hand, um, Parkinson's Tefa Tefa, so the long axe-like club held by the Maori in his print, um, was converted into halberds by the maker of this powder horn, probably the closest analog that he had, but by the late 18th century would have been antiquated by British standards. So the evocation on this particular powder horn may have therefore been a way of depicting indigenous figures as modern in their jackets, yet not quite so modern as their colonizers who had firearms. And transposed to the settler colonial context of New England then, Parkinson's pictorial countersigns of indigenous agency, right? The, the fact of Maori people departing from shores to investigate those who enter their waters has become what J.K. Haolani Kawanui has termed enduring indigeneity. That is, here on this horn, they've been converted into an indicator for us of how across global distances, settler colonial structures actively hold out against indigenous persons at the same time that indigenous peoples exist, resist, and persist in the face of settler colonialism. The surface of the horn then, like the waterway it depicts, is a locus of interpersonal and intercultural contact where assertions of difference and power are articulated through particular forms of knowing and expression. They convey the proximity of individuals in relations that might be based perhaps in trade, alliance, exchange of provisions, but which are persistently underscored by the possibility of violence. One of the most famous prints that gets reproduced in the, the two almanac prints that I've shown you here is at the left of this screen. And it shows a man with a distinctive facial tattoo indicating his genealogical ties to the very north of Aotearoa. And Parkinson captioned it, head of Otegugu, son of a New Zealand chief whose face is curiously tatoued. This person's name is more accurately written as Takuku, and he was a, um, a, the son of a prominent rangatira, or chief, but he was also related to families from the Nare Raumati, Nati Tu, and Nati Wai Iwi, who live at the very near top of the North Island of Aotearoa. And it was only after seeking out Parkinson's description of the figure that you see at left, Takuku, that the reader finds out that Parkinson completed this study after following him and his companions in their retreat because a member of, the, of Cook's crew had shot him in the thigh. This drawing is perhaps one of the most reproduced in the entirety of European exploration of the Pacific. And it was not only engraved for the official published account of Cook's first voyage, but served as the basis yet again for other engravings used in travel compilations and encyclopedias. In fact, the engravings made after Parkinson's studies of Maori men were the first means by which viewers in the cities of Europe and the American colonies first encountered the indigenous peoples of Aotearoa. And I have some examples of the variations on this slide, primarily facilitated by the Rex Nan Cavell collection at the National Library of Australia. Intaglio prints facilitated the widespread circulation of this, these pictures, and thus the possibilities and limitations of this medium are crucial to understanding their reception. The engravings made after the Cook voyages were seen as important and public contributions to the advancement of natural knowledge. While the money raised from subscriptions to the publication paid for the printing of texts and remuneration, bless you, of Cook and other contributors, the engraved plates were funded by the government with public monies. 
At the same time, the tattooed marks on Maori bodies that serve simultaneously as decoration, inscription of genealogy, genealogy, and index of achievement presented a challenge to the notational conventions of copper plate engraving and etching. Thus, the prints made after Parkinson's drawings of tattooed Maori men provide an important case study in the complicated connections that bind late 18th century exploration and nascent ideas of race to the limitations of pictorial media. While it is easy to discern the differences among color, shadow, and tattoo in Parkinson's drawing at left, the same is not quite as easily said of the printed version at right. Though, on close inspection here, I have noticed that the tattoo on the face is rendered in etching, while the rest of the print is largely rendered in engraving. Print nerds will be able to distinguish them as well. Is print nerds an okay term to use in this audience? Thank you, Michael. Uh, because etched and engraved prints rely on modulated concentrations of line to convey tonal variation, the bold mesh of black lines on the young man's neck can be read either as shadow or tattoo. This ambiguity with regard to the referent of the engraved line in the print is particularly problematic or charged because the subject of the engraving is a figure known to be non-European. Thus, the cross-hatched lines can be taken for shadow or for skin tone that is tawny or at the very least not white. What then, in 18th century terms, was the race, or more historically precisely, complexion of this figure? Because of the prince's general title, head of a New Zealander, and the strict profile view that would play a central role in anatomical studies of the 1770s, the question is apt. Notions of race in the late 18th century were not solely based on skin color, and even those that were, were vigorously debated. Many of the writers who we now understand to be influential in modern ideas of race did not in fact use the term race itself, but instead relied on ideas like variety and nation. And though a common assumption today is that race is irrevocably tied to skin color, racial categories were less straightforward in the 18th century. In Britain, most common, the most commonly used approximation of race was complexion, and skin color was actually but one of several factors that contributed to complexion, others being temperament, costume, relation to um, geographical climate, religion was a large one, and civility. Characteristics that we would now associate with culture were integrated into relatively fluid notions of human difference um, at the end of the 18th century. Moreover, climate theory, which was the theory that most um, theorists of racial difference had subscribed to, was frequently debated. Natural historians like the Comte de Buffon, the Baron de Montesquieu, and later Johann Friedrich Blumenbach um, observed that all humans seem to share a similar design and therefore common origin, and proposed that differences in color and body type were understood to be the difference of centuries spent in various climates of the regions in which humans lived. An assumption of climate theory was that the archetypal human was <clears throat> fair-skinned with smooth hair and that variations in skin color or hair textures were, quote, degenerations that arose from exposure to sun, air temperature, and other environmental factors over generations. Climate theory, though prevalent in the 18th century, did not necessarily address all of the questions posed by early theorists of human difference. The philosopher Immanuel Kant, for instance, pondered whether skin color was permanent or the effect of sunburns, suggesting that the observation of individuals born on the African continent who had moved to Europe would help settle the exact color of their skin. The published accounts and pictures from Cook's voyages to the South Seas, so widely circulated in Europe and the United States, raised questions that became central to the debates regarding the origins and categories of human variety, in particular because this was a new space of contact for many Europeans, unlike the prolonged contact that had been witnessed on the African continent and in the, in the Americas. Georg Forster, a naturalist and draftsman who traveled on Cook's second voyage, challenged the fixity of climate theory and the emphasis on skin color, and noted that it did not address the possibility of change, which he thought should be especially pertinent in cases of prolonged contact. As for skin color, he noted that even within a given race, there could be great variations, and cited the example of inhabitants of the Pacific in particular, because they ranged in skin color from light brown to very dark brown, foiling many hypotheses regarding regional consistency. Skin color also proved difficult to accurately and reliably disseminate in natural history illustrations. Working only from tonal gradation 
it is challenging to know which hatch marks indicate overall skin color or the conditions of light and shade needed to convey volume um, and shade. Nonetheless, parallel and perpendicular lines are indispensable to intaglio prints. Depending on the printmaker's training and style and regional um, affinities, they may be the only means of indicating light and shade because opaque ink does not imitate tonal variation the way wash does in the drawing it left. Rather than describing a condition of lighting or skin color, the black lines on the face of um, the Parkinson print based on Takuku provides the engraved inscription with a discrete reference. The fine lines that make up the lattice-like tamoko matu, or tattoo on the face. Moreover, the engraved notation is, is constitutively similar to its referent in that it too is formed by puncturing a surface so that pigment may be deposited therein. Parkinson's drawing of a Maori man with a more linear um, moko, and this is a style that becomes uh, more prominent in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, introduces a form even more akin to the engraved line. Tamoko in the Maori language means to strike and is a practice of permanently marking the skin through carving. When applied to the face, it can be called tamoko kanohi, referring to the face, or tamoko mataura, referring to the first person to carve his face. In the 18th century and among some practitioners today, tamoko was made with a chisel-like tool to incise lines about one eighth of an inch deep into the face. A dark pigment made from burning resinous wood was subsequently applied into the incisions, which would heal into the grooves in such a manner that the designs were not only pigmented, but also irreversibly indented into the surface of the skin. Thus, this process of tamoko at the time could be likened to the process of engraving and inking a plate. And these parallels were not lost on the voyagers who traveled to the Pacific. William Monkhouse, a surgeon who traveled with Cook on the first voyage, said that one Maori man's forehead looked as if it was a plate, graved with numberless little flourishes. One could reasonably argue that Parkinson's drawing of a man with a moko does not seem to fully capture the impression that the surgeon Monkhouse described. The moko in the pen and wash drawing appears to rest on top of the man's skin, and it is not difficult to imagine Parkinson initially drawing the face and then with fluid gestures, subsequently adding the lines of the moko. And nothing in the drawing indicates that these lines are indentations ineradicably carved into the man's skin. Moreover, this particular moko seems to contain a rather finite number of lines and not the countless markings described by the surgeon. The translation of Parkinson's drawing into engraving, however, offers a remarkable resemblance. Thomas Chambers's print not only provides the great number of fine lines that Monkhouse describes, but also collapses any physical distance between face and moko. Though the lines were no doubt meticulously engraved into the plate one at a time, just as Parkinson had executed his drawing, their registration onto the support of the paper was simultaneous. Consequently, the etched moko appears to be integrated into the man's face, while the drawn moko seems to hover above its surface. This integration of moko into skin comes at a price. In the drawing, it is easy to ascertain which lines belong to the face and which constitute the moko. By contrast, in the print, the fine lines that cover the skin's surface in the engraving tend to follow the lines of the moko in such a way that it's possible to read them as those numerous little flourishes, as well as hatchings that would have been used to indicate skin color. Thus, we are faced with the possibility that even in engravings of moko or tattoos more broadly, Pigmented markings are not reliable as discrete notations. In the analysis of beauty published in 1753, the English artist William Hogarth posited that skin color itself resided not in the top layer of the skin, which he believed to be completely transparent, but in a network of color, colored fluids just below. If this feels a bit like describing how tattoo is embedded in skin, you see where I'm going. <laughs> Parkinson is known to have brought a copy of the analysis of beauty with him on Cook's first voyage, and Hogarth's illustration of skin color seen at right may have served as a compositional guide for Parkinson's New Zealander that was based on his study of Takuku. Parkinson's previous figure studies were not rendered in profile. Instead, he often depicted Tahitians posed with the same tilted head and vacant stares that characterize his ornithological illustrations. Additionally, Hogarth's model of undiluted threads 
modulated only by the fineness of mesh, describes exactly the scheme used to indicate skin color in the Takuku engraving with etching. An experienced printmaker known for his incisive observations, Hogarth was nonetheless still subject to the ambiguities of conveying color in, in lines of black ink. And his nuanced system of cross-hatching and its accompanying textual explanation reveals the lengths to which the printmaker must go in order to convey light and color. And he truly believed that in number five, that hatching density would convey to us the color red and that we would reliably be able to recognize that every time, which is so sweet, William Hogarth. One cannot be certain that the engraver responsible for producing Parkinson's drawing read Hogarth's text. But the usage of regular meshwork for the background of the face, uh, for the background and face, suggests that a similar system of color is employed. Following this logic, the lines of the neck should indicate overall tone as opposed to moko. Granted, there are certain discrepancies in the Takuku print that allow for this reading to be questioned, in particular the white area below the figure's eye. Hatch marks cover nearly his entire visage, with the exception of areas understood to be most in contact with light. Initially, one might assume that the area below the eye is one such area. However, in contrast to the patch above the eyebrow that gradually fades from white to hatched, the non-hatched area between the eye and the cheekbone forms a distinct semicircle. Because the des design begins right at the base of the shape, it appears abrupt and strange. The viewer might wonder whether that particular patch of unmarked skin reveals the sitter's true skin color or is just especially illuminated. I didn't have to go backward, sorry. I thought I had to adjust these. In the Moko print, however, there is no sustained network of lines. Shadow here is most easily ascertained on the neck where the lines are cross-hatched. On the shoulder, by contrast, lines of varying length could suggest that the engraver is trying to convey either skin color or tattoo of astounding precision. Combined with the fineness of lines that descend vertically from the hairline and the dots that follow the swirls on the cheeks, a viewer could suppose that these reticulated whorls are what several of the naturalists would call the curious and regular punctures, which darken what they called the tawny complexions of the inhabitants of Aotearoa. And part of this notational ambiguity stems from the concurrence of conventions. Both moko and engraving follow the contours of the face. Close inspection of an engraved portrait of Captain Cook reveals that as in the moko, printed lines arch convex over the eyebrow, flow concave under the eye, and that a dark curve on the viewer's right side emphasizes the crease formed where the muscles surrounding the cheek and mouth meet. The structural similarities between the two forms of inscription, once combined, reveal the limits of engraving semantic clarity. Though at first glance, Parkinson and the engraver Chambers appear to be mere recorders of the visible, their work in fact makes the tattooed subject conform to the visual modes of natural history and ethnography by isolating the contingent and foreign in order to produce readily legible representative types. Thus, the head of a chief of New Zealand serves as an interface between two forms of visuality or cultural modes of vision. The visual culture of the Maori values an intermixing of physical features and indelible ornamentation. The first moko was given to Mataura in order to make him as beautiful and serious as his wife's family in the ancestral realm. But this was not easily subsumed into engraving. Rather than paring back information into a blank surface ornamented with lines, Chambers has hatching suggesting skin tone that form a partial screen and sometimes intersect with his engraved moko and also overlap it. This moko, too bold to fade into the engraved map of the longitude of color or the latitude of shading, disrupts the representational unity that this engraving purports to provide. However puzzling, we may not need to parse out the precise reference for um, these prints. Nonetheless, I do want to show you another example of its reprinting in another context, granted a less expensive context, that shows that it was hard for others to follow at the time. We don't have so many people after the voyage describing faces as engraved, but when we see prints made after these cook plates, we notice that there's those areas of white between the lines, as if the, as if the new printmaker was not quite sure how to handle skin color and tattoo all at once. Nonetheless, for 18th century European observers, complexion did not entirely hinge on whether someone was darkly pigmented at the dermal, tattooed, or epidermal skin color level. 
As Harriet Guest has argued, tattoos were regarded as ambiguously physical during the 1770s and 1780s, and many accounts of, the, of Tahiti and the Marquesas during those two decades lament that the light-complexioned inhabitants of those islands, quote-unquote, distorted their otherwise attractive appearance with dark markings. Cook states that individuals who would otherwise be as fair as some Europeans look near, quote, black because of their punctuations. Indeed, that same voyage surgeon who described the numerous flourishes earlier used an overtly racialized term to describe the Maori who bore moko as looking as black as the people from the African continent. So if the most debated aspect of climate theory was the mutability of skin color, this question was further complicated by the fact that skin color varies greatly across Oceania, and on top of that, tattooing presented European intellectuals, particularly in Britain in the 1770s and 1780s, with a potent marker that was both cultural and somatic. Tattooing embeds black pigment permanently in the skin of the person. Even if you traveled far from the Pacific Islands, these people would retain their markers of difference from Europeans, though many sailors did get tattoos on voyages to the Pacific. They just got them in places where they could hide them. I don't know why I said that with such disdain. I'm feeling sassy. Um, but indeed, the word stain appears frequently in accounts of Maori tattooing, suggesting both bodily corruption and emphasizing the indelibility of tattoos relative to temporary practices of painting the body or dressing it. Indeed, in a quotation from Joseph Banks in his journal, he says that both sexes stain themselves with the color of black. Their faces are the most remarkable on these. They, by some art unknown to me, dig furrows in their faces, a line deep at least, and as broad, the edges of which are often again indented and most perfectly black. This may be done to make them look frightful in war. Indeed, it has the effect of making them enormously ugly. These frightful markings reveal a difference that lies even deeper than skin color. For Banks and for his readers, it, noted, uh, it connoted an inverted sense of aesthetic principles. The people who bore tamoko or tattoos, particularly in Aotearoa, valued neither that which 18th century philosophers took to be the essential feature of a beautiful appearance, whiteness, nor did they observe the moral parameters of aesthetics. That is to say that the, quote, ugly appearance created by Tamoko indicated to the British viewer an improper attachment to both affect or expression and an incorrect understanding of ornament. The incised moko makes the furrows of the head appear deeper, the eyebrows more arched, the nostrils more widely flared, and the mouth more open. That is to say, composed in a fashion that was antagonistic to the neoclassical values of noble simplicity and quiet grandeur espoused by Johann Joachim Winkelmann. For Winkelmann, physical and facial contortion enacted violence against the soul. For the Maori bearer of a moko, by contrast, the exaggeration of the points of the cheeks, the arch of the brows, the outline of the mouth, and the natural movements of the face were understood to lend dignity to its bearer. From the European aesthetic perspective, a moko further enacts moral and aesthetic violence by permanently marking the body with decorations that are not appropriate to it. If we consider the unsettled character of racial categories in the 18th century, it stands to reason that the tattooed visage of Ma uh, Parkinson's Maori subjects would have been read as physically, socially, and thus racially different from the 18th century Britain. We can add religion, a potent um, component of complexion to this mix, as well because Moko defied both biblical prescriptions of Leviticus 19.28, which forbade the cutting into one's flesh and the making of marks upon the skin. Banks, in his journal, praised the skill required to carve tamoko, but was horrified by its appearance on bodies um, that he also met in contentious circumstances. And perhaps that is why the dichotomy, um, or perhaps that is the dichotomy, this understanding of skill and yet horror at the aesthetics, um, draws my scholarly attention again and again to the two Boston versions of the almanac print. They represent both the possibility that tamoko and Maori wood carving in the form of the canoe offered an engraver to relish their skill with the Buren seen at left. And I hope you can look at these up close later, even in the small and economical format of a printed almanac. But it also presents the possibility of illegibility as in the woodcut version. Within the context of 18th century intercultural encounters and the increasing attention to the moral implications of visible and physical difference, this, eligibility, this illegibility presented as darkness, 
whether as a byproduct of print technologies or by intention, and it was weighty, especially when coupled with the more sensationalist excerpts that traveled with them. The cook prints not merely circulate in expensive large-scale publications sold to the nautically minded and wealthy of London, but at many scales and prices across Europe and the British colonies on this continent as well. And so, in a very hasty conclusion, I'll say, though my analysis is undeniably that of an art historian, I am so grateful to be here amongst you scholars of, at Rare Book School, because these prints challenge us to engage in the kind of comparative and attentive work that is so often taught in these courses. It calls us to think about who made these works, how, and for which audiences, audiences plural. So thank you. Yes, thank you so much for that question. And I will say that in another case study that is produced by a French voyage at the beginning of the 19th century, around 1804, um, that does not yet use lithography, it uses stipple engraving, um, I was surprised to find in the instructions for that voyage that there is still an emphasis on um, linearity and structure. So even though it was going to be published with stipple, which allows for tonal gradation, that there is um, in the methodological treatise for the voyage a call to draw the outlines of the face in frontal and profile views following the instructions of an anatomist and um, drawing instructor named Peter Camper. And so one of my proposals is that print media in some ways um, is a contributor to a move to a structural linear model um, of race that we see at the beginning of the 19th century. And then absolutely, with, um, with the more widespread use of lithography, because even by 1804 they could have lithographed it, but with the more widespread use of lithography, there are many examples of tonal difference, and yet lithography also gets really bound up in the language of caricature and physiognomy. And so the lithographic crayon also is working in gradations, but they need to be secured by some other referent. Right? Like if you have somebody who's a mid-gray, how would you know what that stands for unless you have a sort of comparative gallery of nations? So even when you have that tonal model, um, it doesn't guarantee that complexion can be unambiguously circulated. And we see this also in the really wonderful and extensive um, scholarship on the history of photography and race, right? That photography proposed indexicality and tone, and yet what background was being um, put behind the sitter, also what they were wearing, whether the exposure was set for the high, like the highlights or the darkest um, portions of the picture could impact um, what the sort of true color was. So this is a moment where I think we are reminded that we have never seen race depicted. And I think that's actually something really helpful because when we talk to people even today, like what is race, we get a sort of amalgamation of, of ideas and concepts, some of which are tied to skin color and some of which are tied to cultural differences and maybe they're physical and maybe they're not. Um, and so I think looking at the media that was really relied upon by people who thought they had replicable notions of where race was located in the body and to see it never fully depicted, I think is, is very useful for us in reminding us that it's sort of a if it's a cultural mode of vision, it's a desperate one. A desperate one that's basically throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks. Thank you. 
And nonetheless, it has like real fatal different like fatal consequences for people. Um, but hopefully, we can continue to denaturalize its logics. Truly. It's really striking even within some of the cravings how as the, the, the particular people get sort of juxtaposed, they become in some cases like look at the look of the spectrum more to the point where the tattoos, all of the tattoos look to be like that you could have had like the color embedded in their face. Yeah. Yes. And how does, that, how does that kind of impact the analysis that you've shown us here? I think it would depend on, I guess, who, for whom we want to speak, right? Because that is one of, I would say, the great possibilities, but also challenges of speaking to, to printed books and illustrated books, um, that they exist in multiple forms. So there are absolutely hand-colored editions of um, both Hawksworth's Voyages to the Southern Seas and Parkinson's Journal. And in fact, I have seen versions of this print. Actually, let's not use an anti-black quotation while we're sitting here. Um, I've seen versions of this print where the, the face is sort of watercolored all over to a tawny brown. Um, the moko is rendered in slightly more black, and then the lips are um, given the sort of reddish hue. And I think in those cases that you can break apart tamoko from hatching more easily, and yet I don't know that to me it completely disrupts the possibility of like how many other people saw it in the black and white version. And I, and, I, and I, yeah, and I know you, you get that. Um, but I think that is sort of the challenge, is like which, which are the examples that I choose to, to speak for or speak with? Um, but because certainly there will be inconsistencies and heterogeneities among readings, and that's what I think one of the exciting things about working with like sort of publics and audiences of, of printed materials. Wait, I don't know if I'm allowed to call on people, am I? <laughs> Thank you for that question. I always like to say that I am a scholar of European art because I don't ever want to take the space of a Maori scholar, and there is wonderful work by Maori scholars. That said, I, ha I have done reading, and um, if you look at Maori wood carving depicting human figures, you will see that many times human figures who are known to represent named ancestors have specific moko carved into their face that are identifiable. Also, at the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi, some of the rangatira, or chiefs, actually signed with um, an abbreviated version of their moko. So moko is both something that is represented in a form like wood carving and uh, as, a, as essentially a, a sort of script um, and signature um, in visual culture used by, by Maori individuals from the 18th through 21st centuries. So it, it operates um, at sort of multiple levels of, of both, in, at multiple levels of inscription to this day. And so it is, it is represented and representable, um, not only in European visual culture, but absolutely part of, um, I would say, an understanding of the, of the persona and, of the person who bears it. So there are many accounts of, say, like Arangatira from like the northern part of North Island who has never been um, further south. And yet, if somebody were to see his signature on the Treaty of Waitangi, for example, they could recognize it because his moko was known to them. Um, so it is, it is very much part of uh, a, like a Maori visual culture that can be represented.
you, that's a question I really would love to be able to answer, and yet actually the AAS copy of that one print is the first time I saw it in woodcut. I knew the engraved version very well, and I know many of the engraved versions of these prints. I have not seen so many woodcuts, and to be able to actually like watch the sort of state of the block itself over time. Um, though it clearly has had an impact on me because I can never forget the woodcut version of the Boston uh, because it, I, I had written most of this argument before ever seeing that one and then I saw it and I was like, oh my gosh, um, it, really, it really matters. Um, so I, I cannot speak to that. I will say that there are versions of the etched and engraved print based on Takuku that appear more over-inked than others, and it could be due to wear on the plate over time, or it could just be um, over inking. And so there are moments where even the lines that appear to be engraved blend a little bit more with the etched lines, because they have that kind of ragged edge um, that we're used to seeing in an etched line, but not as accustomed to seeing in an engraved line. Um, but I have not had the opportunity to see as many of the woodcut versions as I, was like, as I would like. Um, Again, a real aid in this research has been the Rex Nankavell collection um, at the National Library of Australia, and many of the prints in that collection are etched, actually. Are we ready to socialize? That was a great talk. Thank you so much. We have a poster for you so that you will remember us Aww. at home on the distant shores of California. A little note from the staff and the thunderous applause of our audience. Thank you.